When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It was a surreal image. Last Tuesday, in the sun-dappled grounds of Afghanistan's presidential palace, some of the most senior politicians in the country were marking the Muslim holiday of Eid al-Adha. The president and members of government continue to pray, despite a hail of rockets landing nearby. ISIS said they'd launched the attack. The Afghan government blamed the Taliban. Either way, there's a growing sense that control is slipping away. As the last NATO forces withdraw after 20 years, Afghanistan could be weeks from chaos. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, Leaving Afghanistan, Part 2. Handing victory to the Taliban. Believe me, it's not like I got it all right. It was only in later years that I saw it going horribly wrong. Yesterday, in part one, the Times veteran war correspondent, Anthony Lloyd, looked back over 25 years of reporting from Afghanistan. Any kind of notion now that, well, we, we being the British, or our allies, the Americans, were tactically brilliant or tactically victorious, but politically defeated, is absolutely a false notion. Our armies indulged in, a, in both tactical level and strategic level in a policy which ensured their ultimate defeat. Today, with the last NATO forces due to leave next month, we're looking ahead to the country's future. Well, the violence in Afghanistan is surging as the Taliban move to gain more territory outside their southern strongholds. In early May, the Taliban launched a major offensive against Afghan government forces. It started just days after NATO began its final withdrawal. The attacks come as peace talks in Qatar have stalled. After over two hours of heavy fighting, all ammunition spent, Afghan commandos walk out with hands in the air. Videos show militants converging on Kandahar, Afghanistan's second biggest city, and the Taliban's spiritual home. This clip surfaced last week, showing them executing 22 Afghan commandos. Rules of war don't exist on this battlefield.
Another unverified video appears to show the Taliban firing at bodies strewn across the ground. It said that the dead were dragged from their homes as the Taliban went door to door looking for government supporters. Nearly 800 civilians have been killed in the last 12 weeks. It's likely to be Afghanistan's worst death rate since 2001. The alacrity with which the Taliban are moving now around the compass face in Afghanistan is, you know, that's a speed far greater than the government left in place by the Soviets when they withdrew in 1989. We're losing ground then. So the forces which we built up and we supported are losing ground now to the Taliban far more quickly than the forces built up by the Soviets did in 1989. You know, it's not looking good. That really is alarming. U.S. defense officials in Afghanistan say the last U.S. and NATO troops have now left Bagram. That is the linchpin of U.S.-led operations. We are flying over Bagram Airfield, once home to 38,000 U.S. troops, now nearly abandoned. The fighter jets gone, nearly everything gone. This is what packing up 20 years of war in Afghanistan looks like. 100% we lost the war. The whole point was to get rid of the Taliban. We didn't do that. What good are we actually doing? We're now to Afghanistan, where the government is facing an increasingly dire security situation. Taliban insurgents have overrun dozens of districts in several provinces, forcing thousands to flee. How scared are you about going to school? I'm scared a lot. Whenever I leave my house, I'm scared, because we don't know if we'll come back alive, she says. Just beyond heartbreaking, to see now what will inevitably start happening again in the void that America leaves. Doesn't sound like things are much better on the ground. I mean, a lot of people will be wondering, why is NATO leaving now? I think there is, there is an argument, it was certainly the argument that President Trump believed in, that the Afghan war was not being solved by the presence of American soldiers or, you know, the coalition. It had gone on for 20 years, and it was getting worse. It was a very unpopular war in America. It's a pretty unpopular war in Britain, too. So he had promised that if he'd become president, he would get Americans out of Afghanistan. And he delivered on that promise with the Doha Agreement, which was signed on February the 29th last year. I told the Taliban, I spoke to the leader, and I spoke. I said, let's call him Mohammed. I said, Mohammed, we're leaving. And I said, do you understand? He goes, huh? And that was a lousy agreement. I mean, whichever way you look at it. It wasn't a peace agreement. It was an agreement between the Americans and Taliban. It did not include the Afghan government. It was an agreement between the Americans and the Taliban for Americans to withdraw their forces by the 1st of May this year on the back of a few assurances by the Taliban, such as, oh, Afghanistan won't be used as territory to launch a terrorist attack on America again. And yes, we'll have some talks with the Afghan government in order perhaps to come to a peace deal. That was pretty much about it. And with us to talk about it is the spokesman for the Taliban, Mr. Swail Shaheen. Thank you very much for taking Thank the you. time. The government says that the Taliban has not been engaging in dialogue sincerely. Is the Taliban serious in dialogue? Sure, we are serious. 
the Taliban claiming to have taken 27 more districts. Videos often highlight seizure of US-made military hardware, Humvees and trucks. So America just said they were going to leave. It wasn't a deal which said, well, we will calibrate our withdrawal according to progress made in peace talks between the Taliban and Afghan government, or according to whether the Taliban hold good in their loose assurance that they'll reduce the threat of violence. So really since February last year, you've seen violence escalate. The Americans never put the brakes on their withdrawal. You saw President Biden then inherit the Doha deal, which he could have revised. He certainly had people look at it in the early part of this year, but then he chose not to revise it. He chose to say, yes, and we will get Americans out. We're not going to make the 1st of May deadline, but we will have them out. First of all, he said by September the 11th, then he's given an August date for all Americans to be out of Afghanistan. There's hardly any left at all. And so this was a lousy deal, which had no traction in any respect to moving Afghanistan towards peace and was really just a deal about getting the Americans out of Afghanistan. In August last year, I spoke to Afghanistan's president, Ashraf Ghani. I asked him what it had been like working with the Trump administration. Uh, first of all, my style of discussions and partnership is I focus on the issues, not on the persons. Yeah, but is there a sense that there is a rush for the exit now? As a leader of Afghanistan, as an elected leader of Afghanistan, people have taken away my right to feelings and personal opinion. A war-affected country does not have the luxury of determining the policies and strategies of its major partners. We have now one of the best fighting forces in our commandos and special forces in our air force. We need support. The key thing that we want from the international community is support for an orderly peace. We are at that critical juncture between either bringing stability to our country or, God forbid, go into a new cycle of violence. I mean, given that, as you describe it, Afghanistan is on a precipice, you know, the violence could get much worse, or you could finally have the stability you need to rebuild as a country. Have you been assured that you'll get the support you need to be able to build a better future? We're very grateful for all our international partners. The United States may have one attitude, our other partners may have different attitudes. There were, among other NATO countries, it's fair to say, there was a desire to stay in Afghanistan. Because let's be clear about this, NATO casualties and American casualties have been absolutely minimal over the last five years. As a war-fighting entity, really, NATO troops have been out of the war for several years. There was the option to keep them there. They could have said, well, how many thousand American troops in, in South Korea? I think it's 25 or 28,000 have been there for, you know, over half a century. Now, you can look at Afghanistan as a, as a problem which you cannot solve quickly. You cannot solve even in the long term. And so you think, well, we will try and safeguard the achievements that have been made in Afghanistan over the last 20 years by keeping, I think the total was about 9,000 NATO and American troops there total. Well, keep those there outside combat roles in training and air coordination and in logistical supply. And that won't solve the Afghan problem, but it will prevent a worst case scenario. Now let's talk about worst case scenarios. There's two potentially. One is that Afghanistan falls 
end the civil war that it had back in the 90s again, and that perhaps central government breaks apart and the whole country fragments into round-the-compass face fighting. All these sent the Taliban back to power, precipitating a refugee crisis of millions and millions, as happened in the 90s, into Pakistan and Iran and actually out to Europe as well. Now, both of those scenarios, I would say, are more likely scenarios than the eventuality of peace at the moment, given what is happening on the ground and given what is not happening in the Doha peace talks. The two sides have been meeting on and off now for months, but the talks have lost momentum as the fighting continues to rage back home. Coming back to the state of the nation as it is, take me back to your diaries from your most recent visit. In late June, you were embedded with a slightly sketchy outfit on a mission. (laughs) Tell me a bit about that. This time, obviously, one of the central parts of the story is the ability or inability of Afghan security forces to hold ground against the Taliban. So I was thinking, well, how am I going to cover this? Well, my fixer, whose name I can't actually say on air in case it brings him about trouble, but he, he uh, he's a guy I've worked with, you know, my fixer translator, I think for eight or nine years. He suddenly said, hey, I know this counterterrorism commander in Herat, and he drives down the road to check on positions the whole time. Maybe we could just go with him and his mob. And so I was like, oh, that's a great idea. Well, who are his mob, actually? And he said, well, there's some of his own guys, a few counterterrorist guys, plus there's a renegade Taliban unit who are being funded by the Afghan intelligence services to fight against the Taliban, and a few other kind of odds and sods as well. And they roll down the road south of Herat, Roads towards Helmand. They frequently check on their outpost down that road. So I thought, okay, great. Well, let's go, let's go with them then. Coming up, Anthony hits the road and meets the Taliban. But first, okay, let's see how this goes. Hi, this is Tom Whipple, science editor for the Times. Thanks for listening. By doing so, you enable me to keep pace with the rapidly changing developments in the coronavirus pandemic and more. To enjoy more remarkable stories every day, subscribe to the Times and the Sunday Times today and get one free month. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. So the plan was really simple. It was to get into three unmarked Corollas, tint windows, you know, a bit shot up and battered, everyone wearing a turban, tooled up to the nines and roll down the road and check on the posts and see how many are still being held by Afghan security forces. You can't wear body armor or helmets. The whole point is if you're going down with a whole lot of bearded guys in turbans and shawar kameez, you don't want to be standing out. It's supposed to look like one of them, so I swear, you know, Shalwa, big beard, and a prayer cap, and a scarf, same as they do. There's one guy who's there, and he's been wounded in a previous gun battle. And you say, how's your military career been so far? And he said, oh, well, you know, I've just finished a five-year stretch for armed robbery, but before that, I used to be a cop. <laughs> kind of like, he says it without any trace of irony at all, he's, you know, being serious. And so he's only been out of jail a couple of months and he's already been shot in a far fight for the Taliban while he's in this counter-terrorist unit. 
think there's a notion which is entirely erroneous that there's not much fighting around in the country. The levels of violence and war are really acute at the moment. God, there was some other guy there in the unit who had been part of a surrounded base. He'd lost half of his section. He'd been surrounded by the Taliban for a month. He'd been eating grass. He was completely off his rocker. I mean, gibbering, really. Like, you know, the guy needed not to be on the front line with a weapon. Anyway, Amanullah Khan, where are you from originally? So they have a chat. It's very interesting talking to them. I mean, they didn't speak of NATO and the Americans with hatred, but they're aware they've been dropped from a great height. If the Americans were still here, would the situation be different? Yes, if Americans were here, so Taliban were not that brave enough to, to attack us. You know, they said the foreign forces came here and stoked fire between us and the Taliban, and now they run away and leave us in a life and death struggle. So they all bowl off down the road. And the first thing they say to me is, oh, look, see that post up there, and you can see a small sort of mini fortress at the top of the hill. And who is in that post now? Anybody? We do not know. We can't go there. We don't have a tank to go there. That's been abandoned. That should, that should be an Afghan flag flying there, and there's not. Wonder why. Taliban. Fell to the Taliban or just abandoned? No, no, no. Fall in the hand of the Taliban. Taliban captured. There's no one in there. It's passing. Captured. Uh, outpost. They drive on for another mile and it's like, and then you see a white flag. When there's a white flag, that means it's the Taliban. The Taliban's white emblem flying above a post. And then you start getting that sinking feeling. It's like, okay, we're rolling off down the road and we're clearly going into a very, very fluid situation here. Then the guys in the car started getting tense because there's like, you know, post after post was abandoned. Some of the posts were being stripped by civilians already, a sure sign that soldiers had gone, gone, gone. The next minute, we bowl around the corner and there's like eight or ten Taliban in the road. They're part of an advanced unit and they've stopped a big truck. They're all kind of gathering around this truck. It's quite a wide kind of rutted highway we're on. And they look at us, but all they see is three Corolla, which is what the Taliban drive the whole time, full of bearded guys. And they just think they're their own. So they kind of just wave us through. We drive straight through. I thought I was going to have a heart attack. But even worse than that. You pass off as Taliban. Just, yeah. Exactly. Just passed an unlikely exam. We just drove through a checkpoint down there where there were armed guys at the side of the road. Whose checkpoint is that? Taliban. So you've got two cars back up, eight fighters, two PKMs and six Clash. About a mile further on, the commander stops and he's like, uh, basically... We can't go any further because we've just driven through the Taliban advance. And if we go up further, we're going to drive even more into the Taliban advance and, you know, we're going we're to get hit. The reason, because if we go deeper into their territory, maybe they will realize or recognize us, then they will ambush us and will stop us and capture us. So let's just turn around here, which means going straight back through the advanced Taliban unit. We've just driven through. So sure enough, five minutes having driven one way through the Taliban, we're driving all straight back again, all sort of grinning and waving out the window. <laughs> I'm sure I'm going to die. Well, this could be fun. I'm just driving out past the Taliban position again. Yeah. What would have happened if that Taliban checkpoint that we drove through twice realised who we were? Fighting. Does he often drive through Taliban checkpoints? Yes. Ambush, open fire, but didn't stop my vehicle. Mm -hmm. Drive fast. 
a couple of miles down the road after that, we come to one post, and it was almost the scariest bit. The doors were shut up. It was a big post, you know, sort of like watchtowers and all the rest of it sandbagged up. But no one looking out, no flag, but the gates were shut. Now, we're all at, you know, turbans and shawa, and they think that the post is still being held by Afghan soldiers, but they're not sure. So they're kind of like, mm, we don't want to hang around too much because if there are Afghan soldiers there, they might shoot us up. And they try and get through on the radio and that doesn't work. And they try and get through on the phone and that doesn't work. And finally, one guy reaches under the seat and pulls on a camouflage jacket and he gets out of the car and kind of waves his hands and walks up to them a bit. And finally, a kind of frightened shout comes back from a watchtower. And it has got some soldiers in it. And then and once did they, they work think out, you were Taliban? They didn't know who we were, but luckily they were too frightened to shoot at us. Anyway, it turns out, so we go in the base and they're completely freaked out. They've been hit, you know, two or three nights in a row. They've lost guys in neighbouring bases. How many guys are supposed to be here on this base? Nine, zero. And how many is there? Nine. There's supposed to be 90 Total soldiers time. in the little post along that strip nine. of the road, but there were only nine at that point. How often are they attacked? They're all around us, around our base, but we do not know exactly when they're going to attack. Like the small exchange fire. Small exchange firing happens every day, every night, but like a big attack, we do not know when they're going to attack us. They were absolutely freaked out, begging us to stay at the end too. Says that uh, uh, the the night when we were attacked, we asked for backup. The backup didn't turn out for two and a half hour heavy fighting, and the plane, uh, the fighter planes arrived. They didn't fire a single bullet toward the Taliban. Then that made our uh, staff very hopeless. That maybe the government has sold us and not supporting us. That's why they ran away. They just left their jobs. Did they suffer any casualties here on the base that night? Uh, nobody died, but eight were injured. After my soldiers were injured, Taliban uh, went into the base and told my soldiers that, why do you guys sacrifice your lives for a corrupt government? Why? We are not going to kill you. You guys are injured. They collected all our weapons, ammunition, everything with them and left my soldiers behind. Yeah, that was that. Anyway, we left them to it and drove back to Herat. I mean, I think we'd done a round trip of about 30 miles, but I'll tell you what, I didn't think I could breathe for most of it. I mean, that's a snapshot of what some of the Afghan national defence will look like at the moment. I mean, from what you've seen, are they equipped? Are they going to be able to put up much of a fight? Well, they that should do. That doesn't sound reassuring. No, they should do. I mean, look, at its peak, the Afghan National Security Forces is meant to be about 300,000 guys. And it's very interesting as well, as NATO ran for the exit here, had our intelligence services picked up that the Taliban were planning a round-the-country offensive against the Kabul government? Had NATO not picked that up? Or did they pick it up and just didn't really care? But either way, for ages, senior officers have said, oh, well, 300,000 Afghan security force members, that'll give the Taliban something to think about. Well, no, it doesn't give the Taliban much to think about. If you stretch your forces out everywhere, 
you lose your air support because NATO go and the Afghan air force is, is, is minuscule. And then the Taliban just move in and they surround those bases. And if you put some IDs on the road and you surround a base, it doesn't matter how good the guys inside it are. If they don't have food for 20 days, they're eating grass, they're going to surrender. And that's what's happening. They're surrendering or some are fighting and others are running away into the night. It may well be that these guys are prepared to fight and die for what they believe in, but they're rather less prepared to fight and die in the middle of nowhere without any backup, without any support. I mean, tell us a bit about the threat they're facing. You know, you mentioned how it seems surprising NATO wasn't aware that there was this cross-country Taliban attack coming. How effective has that been? How much territory do the Taliban now hold? Okay, well, put it this way. Over the last two months, the Taliban, who had an existing loose control, probably of about one district in three, have now got probably over 50% and maybe up to about 65% of the number of districts in Afghanistan. Now, here's the thing. The government might say, ah, but the war was decided actually by population centers. And the population centers are the cities. I mean, Kabul, for example, has got 6 million people who live in it. So it doesn't really matter if you control some hickey districts in the middle of nowhere. Now, that argument's true to a point. But if you've got over 65% of the districts in Afghanistan, what that means is that you can effectively smother you can really pressurize Afghan cities. If all the rural areas around them, including the approach roads, are controlled by Taliban, by the insurgents, mm. then you can really pressurize cities. You can move people about, you can move your forces about, you can move your ammunition about, and, uh, and it puts the government really on the defensive. The speed of this Taliban offensive, which has basically doubled the land that they control in Afghanistan over the period of about 10 weeks, has been phenomenal. And on the ground, when ordinary Afghans are seeing the Taliban very quickly taking over huge areas, even if they're not the big cities, are they sort of winning the war of the narrative? You know, does does it feel like the momentum is behind them? Are they winning in PR terms? Oh, the Taliban are totally winning in PR terms. I mean, every time you get someone in... The New York Times saying that, oh yeah, American intelligence services say that the Taliban might eject the Kabul government in as little as six months. That sends out an incredible message for the Taliban. You know, personally, I think it's very, very, very unlikely that Taliban will be in Kabul anytime soon. Kabul is extremely well defended. There's a huge concentration of very well-armed security services there. I don't think that solves the war, but I think it's very unlikely that the Taliban will be in Kabul or even get a sniff at it for a long time soon. However, Overall, the momentum of news is on districts every day, new districts falling to the Taliban of government surrenders, of government losses. And that kind of news overlooks the fact that Taliban is suffering actually very heavy casualties in this too. Whether they can hold on to the gains they've made over the autumn and in the approach to winter will remain to be seen. But at the moment, the momentum is entirely with them and the PR victory is in their hands at the moment. Are there influence operations? Are they putting stuff out on social media? Oh, yeah. Abdul Rashid, can you play that Taliban clip that's just come through to us? Every district they take, there's some pretty good video coming out. 
you hear some Quranic verse and see the brothers, you know, waving the white emblem from uh, above some latest fallen outpost and driving around in Humvees and showing loads and loads of stacks of stacked M16s and whatever they've captured. And this is ironic. Most people's memory of the Taliban is that they don't believe in music and films. You know, so this is this is a, a new brand. Oh, it's a new brand. The Taliban are really good in uh, publicity. And on this visit, you actually spent some time with the Taliban. You you had a slightly surreal meeting. Tell us a bit about. The, the people you met and, I mean, how much has the Taliban changed? I have met newer gen- generation Taliban who are, you know, very switched on all over social media. And also, you've got to remember, the majority of people living in Afghanistan, I mean, literally the majority, are less than 30 years old and never knew the time of Taliban tenure there. And I very much doubt that they're going to be too enthusiastic about, you know, the Taliban coming back to power again. So the Taliban have to think very carefully about how they do try and come back to power. However, in the past, you know, some assignments I've done there where I've made great efforts to try and get the right permissions to go off and see the Taliban. And at times it's been interesting and other times it's been rather boring. But this time, while I was there, my translator said, oh, look, there's actually, through a contact of his, several Taliban have come are coming to the Karga Lake, which is it's on, the, on the west side of Kabul. People go and they sit in tea houses along the banks of this huge lake, eat and relax. And so I was like, okay, great. Well, I want to go and meet these Taliban then. Are they okay to see me? And there was some go-between messages. Yeah, they're fine to see you. And so in the car on the way there, I was going through my my killer question list to make sure, you know, we could have serious chat about the war and, and all things, you know, of seriousness and meaning. Anyway, before I got into the little alcove, I could smell that these guys had been smoking. So I went in, I found these three Taliban off their heads. They were so stoned. It was all like tilted turbans and Scooby-Doo smiles and glittery glassy eyes. And they're very pleased to see me. But as soon as I was shaking hands and I was thinking, oh my God, what's going to happen to my questions? Oh, these guys don't look like they're going to get it together for an interview. I mean, is, is that allowed? Is that sort of Taliban no. etiquette that you're supposed to be off your head? You know, technically it's haram, but... These three guys are so stoned, and one went down like a kind of fallen tree, you know, <laughs> shaking his hand. It was one of those times you just go into doing an interview, and you're like, oh my God, this is so not going to work. Because every time I ask them a question, they kind of forgot what the question was. <laughs> anyway, that what did I learn? I learned that they were smoking Helmandi Charas. And then one offered, yeah, the Taliban get rid of the Americans, but Charas gets rid of Corona. They were trying to say that, yeah, they wouldn't get Corona because they were smoking Charas, which was kind of a new one to me, but... To know. Is there a sense, I mean, you mentioned that a lot of the population in Afghanistan is quite young. There's an awful lot of the population who don't really remember life before the Americans arrived, don't really remember life under the Taliban. How will that change what we can expect from the future? I mean, tell me a bit about the, the younger generation out there. Well, I think when I was talking about Western Kabul, Earlier, I was talking about some families who are traditionally very, very poor, where you get parents who are illiterate, who'd never been to school, man and woman, but who are really keen in understanding the deficiency and opportunity caused by their own lack of education, send their children to school, send their girls to school. If we talk about an Afghan, what is an Afghan? An educated young woman who wants to be a professor or a doctor 
or a scientist or an educated young man who has just left university and wants to be a civil servant, a lawyer, a prosecutor. There's this jihadi image of all Afghans. That's irrealistic. It's been forged by the fact the country's been at war for 40 years and by all of us journalists who have concentrated so much on the fighting that I think people listening to anything about Afghanistan just assume it's all about Mujahideen, it's all about Taliban, it's all about men with beards, and it's all about fighting Kalashnikov and rocks. It's not. It's about an awful lot more than that. Now, what's going to happen if the Taliban try and lean too heavily in reimposing that old-style Islamic Emirate on Afghanistan? I don't think you're going to get areas of popular uprising within Taliban zones. But what I do think is you're going to get millions of people leaving Afghanistan as refugees to go abroad. At the end of your your visit, you went and spoke to Amrullah Saleh, Afghanistan's vice president uh, and an old friend of yours. When the Trump administration had said that they were withdrawing, when you last saw him, you know, I remember you saying he was ready to die with a chest and head full of bullets rather than be part of an elite deal which would sell the Afghan people to the Taliban. What was his mood like this time? This time when I saw him, he had just come back from Washington. Him and President Ghani had seen President Biden to try and find out what is the future of American security policy in Afghanistan. The partnership between Afghanistan and the United States is not ending. It's, uh, It's going to be sustained. We believe the mission is not accomplished, but if they decide to leave, we respect their decision. He was quiet. He was reflective, but also very straight about it. He was like, he said, it is what it is. I'm not dwelling on the past, nor trying to say things that create a sense of guilt, nor some sense of sin, nor to say, America, you did wrong. It is what it is, and we have to deal with the consequences. Did you get a sense of how serious he thinks those consequences will be? Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, who couldn't looking at Afghanistan now? I mean, you don't sound optimistic. I'm not optimistic at all. The speed and the clumsiness with which Western powers have withdrawn this year will precipitate a very, very grave set of consequences for Afghanistan. Given that, what do you think the legacy of this war will be? Millions of people on the move, a conflagration that will go on at a level of extreme violence and result in ungoverned spaces that reproduce exactly the same jihadi terrorist camps of exactly the same doctrine that attacked America back in 9-11. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, legendary Times foreign correspondent, Anthony Lloyd. You can find all of Anthony's dispatches from the front line at thetimes.co.uk. And if you want to hear our full interview with the president of Afghanistan from last year, we'll put a link in the description of this episode. The producer was James Shield, with help from Chris Wade. The executive producer of the podcast is Poppy Damon, and it was mixed by Gareth Isles. If you enjoyed this episode, then please do leave us a review. It'll help others to find it. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.